I'm Jane Wilcox, and you're listening to Shaklesiology, Girls Talking Church. Tell your girls a story, I won't tell you a lie. Anything you want, you can do it just fine. Come on. I'm here today with the SHE team. Besides myself, we are Kim Ho, Jennifer Johnson, Chris Ann Swartley. I have regularly walked the same route through Highland Park section of Levittown for nearly 30 years. And on one particular evening, I saw hanging on someone's front door a sign that said, quote, go away, except the seemingly harsh phrase was painted on a tall wooden board, think Etsy-like material. And instead of, quote, welcome or a warm hello, it said, go away, exclamation mark. But it was in the, the same sort of warm, gentle font. And it did make me laugh at first. And then I thought, that's not really who we are, Highland Park, except for that one time when African-Americans were not allowed to buy houses in Levittown. But that was a long time ago, so we're not going to talk about that. Uh, my second thought was a question as related to the church world. Are there signs that we hang on the metaphorical front door of our churches or our denominations that unwittingly, subtly, in the most gentlest of fonts communicate go away to certain individuals that perhaps don't fit comfortably in our communities or our theology or certain kinds of people that are just different than us? So in gender, ethnicity, even sexuality. I gave a message to a room of mostly pastors, mostly men and mostly white, using this story as my introduction among a tribe of churches that's mostly white and mostly male, both at the local and national level. A bit later, a pastor in attendance asked the question, where are we excluding people? How are we excluding women and people of color in our churches? I just don't see it. I don't see how we're excluding others. And to note, though this group has taken the position theologically to ordain women and people of color, of course, there has yet to be any sort of significant change over the years in the demographics of leadership or in, in pastoral ranks. So in our episode, I'd like us to talk about how to answer this person's question, particularly concerning barriers for women, though without question, there are certainly a, a parallel phenomenon that inhibit people of color uh, into positions of leadership, both in churches and uh, in denominations. So let me start with a quote from a published piece in Christianity Today by Stephanie Dyernist Lobdell. And she says this in particular about second generation gender bias. She says, quote, there seems to be something in the water of many churches at both the local and denominational level, something that is hindering women from thriving at the same level as their male counterparts. In past generations, it was easy to identify explicit structures and policies that hindered women from obtaining and succeeding in pastoral roles. But in many cases, those overt barriers have been eliminated. Even so, the number of female pastors hasn't shifted much. And now she's gonna give us some statistics. Uh, she wrote this article in 2018, so give it about a five-year buffer for statistics to be slightly dated here. And she says, According to Hartford Institute for Religion Research, only 12% of congregations in, in the United States have female lead pastors, and in evangelical churches, that number drops to 
If so many barriers have been eliminated, why haven't the number of women and men in lead pastorates and denominational leadership positions equalized? She goes on to say, researchers Herminia Ibera, Robin Eli, and Deborah Kolb asked the same questions about women in the secular workplace and determined there was undoubtedly something in the water, something that went deeper than the overt barriers of years gone by. They named this experience second-generation gender bias, concluding that, and these are their words, second-generation bias erects powerful but subtle and often invisible barriers for women that arise from cultural assumptions and organizational structures, practices, and patterns of interaction that inadvertently benefit men while putting women at a disadvantage, unquote. And then they name these four barriers in a general sense. So I'll just quickly say them so we have uh, things on the table to talk about. The first one, an invisible barrier would be the lack of role models of women for women. Second, gendered career paths and gendered work, which are those difficult norms to break. For example, women uh, that end up in the in the workplace, but their workload at home doesn't change. So gendered career paths and gendered work. Third, women's lack of access to network and sponsors. So think of mentoring and coaching and just support systems. And then the fourth one is called double binds. And those are role expectations for women that end up in no-win scenarios. So just a quick example, if we define a leader with a strong and assertive personality, that makes for a good leader, Women that display those sorts of traits would be considered, for example, domineering and power grabbing. And then if they don't have those assertive and strong personality traits, then they would not be considered a good leader. So that's called a a double blind. So here's my question. What do we think about this idea of second generation gender bias in terms of the, the hidden barriers that are prohibiting women from moving into more leadership positions, both in denominations and churches. And then the question that the gentleman asked me, I wanted to toss around, what do we say to someone when they cannot see those invisible barriers that are preventing women from moving into church leadership roles? And how do we help people see And that feels like a monumental task, but how do we help people see those hidden obstacles that are erected in our churches and denominations? So there you go, ladies. What do you think? I was actually shocked by the the one article because it was definitely coming out of the secular world. It was not coming out of the church world. And I have to admit, I was quite shocked at how prevalent the second generation bias And all of that was still present out there because I often think of the church being so far behind, like, you know, Mm, women lead hospitals, they lead educational institutions. I see, you know, women leading out there in the world. And then, you know, as soon as they walk in the church doors, we often ask them to take a step back and, you know, be in the kitchen, the nursery, um, Mm. in the office doing administrative stuff, but not leading as much. I was somewhat shocked by that. And it just reminded me again, how difficult it is for society to let go of some of these biases. It's just just way deep, way deep in our culture. Mm. So the denomination in which I was raised, you know, that I still consider myself part of that, that group, um, 
a few years ago, they ended one kind of national gathering of those denominational leaders and kind of put that to bed. And then they relaunched Mm -hmm. something new and it was intentionally designed for younger leaders, kind of the, you know, the next generation. And they made a big deal about how they wanted it to be for men and women. And they wanted it to just really reach out to this next generation that were coming up that were going to be leading the church, which, Mm -hmm. you know, a, I'm not a church leader and B, I'm too old for it. So, so it wasn't for <laughs> me, but that's fine. That's not my beef with it. Yeah. Um, Cause I agreed with the purpose statement and the vision for it. My problem with it was in addition to this annual gathering, the other main way that they've attempted to try to keep all these young leaders connected and to make it accessible for people around the country to participate is they, they've started having golf outings. That's their big thing. <laughs> Right. And I'm like, okay, yeah. one of two things are true. Either you know that only 22% of American women play golf and you don't care. Yeah. Or you didn't bother to think about how few mm. women play mm-hmm. golf. Oh, mm-hmm. um, I'm not really happy with either explanation. Right. Um, I'm yeah. going to give the benefit of the doubt that it's the latter. Mm. And they're they're just thinking, well, you know, mega church pastors with lots of money play golf. So, so must everybody. So it bothers me, not just for the gender implications of it, but also playing golf is expensive. So you're leaving out some of your younger younger leaders from different demographics. There's a whole other thing about it. Like read the room. Like this is what we're doing to try to keep our denominations leaders tethered together. Um, the other thing, and I'm, I don't mean to totally sandbag on this event, <laughs> probably the people in charge of it are going to listen to this and be like, well, you're not ever invited. Um, one of the first years that they did it, they had a woman, they had women on stage a lot, but they had one of the more higher profile women in our, in our denomination and who does preach and teach quite a bit from mm. many of these churches pulpits. So yay for that. And they had her up for like a Q&A, like the guy asks her like three questions. And one of the questions was something to the effect of, how do you juggle it all? And I was just like, and I, so I messaged the guy who asked the question, who's like one of the guys in charge of this conference. I messaged him that night and I was like, you would never have asked and didn't ask any of the mm. men on stage that question. It's not serving you to ask that question because every woman in the room rolled her eyes. With yeah. So those are just anecdotal but they're not even thinking about it. There's yeah. these patterns mm-hmm. that you're talking about. This enculturation mm-hmm. is so deeply ingrained that if we want to give the benefit of the doubt, it's unconscious. I guess, you know, the question to your question is how do we surface it? So it becomes more yeah. overt. How do we name it in ways that are helpful? Mm-hmm. I don't know what the answer is, but I just, I think a lot of it is just, they're so used to being in charge that they don't even think about yeah. who they're leaving out. Yeah. Right. Right. And even in the nature of having this conversation, it's, you know, that double bind of if you see a problem in your workplace and you want to make it better, sometimes if you were a man and you brought it up, it's like, oh, he has leadership initiative. But if you're a woman and you do it, you complain. And so I think there's also that fear of having to take on that role of the squeaky wheel Mm -hmm. and the fear of being pegged as, oh, you just complain or it's not enough for you or why can't you settle um, but I, I don't want to say, oh, it's unfortunate that women have to be the one to be their best champion and be their best advocate, uh, because that is an immense emotional burden yeah. 
to take on that you would yeah. have to deal with your fear and your insecurity but know that it is probably good and right but have to like bring that up because what yeah. evidence sometimes do you have to bear other than the fact that you have been in that place and that you have been hurt you have to have your seat from the table taken away or is offered to somebody else um, and that's really painful and it feels very mm. unfair um, yeah. to have to be the squeaky mm -hmm. wheel in the room in order to course correct for the fact that there is a lack of women role models, right? And I think I think the the lack of women role models especially is challenging because right now representation in media is having, you know, having a moment, right? Like people are pushing for it, people are critiquing it, that it's not enough to just put them up there. They need to be real like characters in movies and TV yeah. with like feelings and backstories and drama, right? They just can't play the certain occupation because that is what we think they should do. Um, I think the same with women. Like, uh, I think for me, when I got into preaching, I asked someone, can you show me uh, an Asian American woman who is not a conference speaker, but she preaches regularly? Mm -hmm. And the amount of people came up short. Mm -hmm. Well, then now what? Because I don't want to sound, I don't want to sound like Tim Keller or John Piper or um, Tony Evans. Like, I don't, I don't mm -hmm. want to sound like them. They're great. And there's a lot to learn from them, but I don't look or sound like them. And so it's, it's challenging because then it's like, oh, then you have to somehow settle, right? It's like, here's a woman who preaches, but like not in the same, maybe like tone or even the way that you would use language um, in age, just as the resident millennial in the room, like the way that I would say something is different than someone who is mm -hmm. a little bit older might say something or she preaches, but it's um, for like youth or just for women's ministry, which is great and <laughs> wonderful, but that's not my context to look at someone and be like, oh, I want to do what she's doing. I'm like, oh, that makes sense to me because I can see myself there. Mm -hmm. And not only can I see her doing it well, now somewhere inside me, perhaps I have the audacity to hope that I also can be in that place because someone else has done it before me and not have not to have to like made concessions for who she is and what she's doing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And talking about role models and being able to see ourselves in that role, not to mention that with a, with a woman, we're not treated like we're radioactive. I mean, so often I would get this from my male mentors. Well, I can't, you know, I can't drive alone with you in a car. I can't meet with you in a room with the door closed. If we're the only two people in the building, you mm -hmm. need to go because that's not, that's not okay. That's not safe. And I don't, I know sometimes that comes from a place of wanting me to feel safe but I think, I think also it's sometimes the man doesn't want to be accused of anything. And yeah, it's so frustrating. So frustrating. I mean, at least my, my understanding or what I feel in, in those scenarios is that the onus is being put on the woman. So, so she is missing out on something. I have a story of sitting one-on-one -on -one in a public cafe with another pastor and one of his pastor friends walked in and the guy I was meeting with introduces me to him and it was fine. But once he left, I was told, you know, I'm going to hear about that. And I was like, we're in a public space, yep. but I was the problem. Yep. You're radioactive. Right? <sighs> I was the problem. And it does, it, it, it does take something away from us, our validity, 
our self-worth, the fact that someone thinks I'm dangerous, that's painful to perceive that someone thinks I'm dangerous, whether it's- Or they um, think- they think they're so unresistible. I'm like, just, right. please just, you're, we're fine here. <laughs> oh, gosh. I, I have a funny story from seminary. I was invited to speak to the, I believe it was the board. It was either near the end of my seminary time or it mm. was after graduation. They invited me to come and speak to the board. Um, I think because I was the only woman in my cohort and they wanted to yeah. hear from some female MDiv students. And I actually wrote a parable because it's so hard to explain this stuff yeah. to men because it's so outside their experience. So I wrote a parable um, as if I was a young man who went to an mm-hmm. all-female seminary. And so I described how every book was written by a woman, every professor, except maybe one or two adjunct every professor was a woman. Mm -hmm. Um, the women would get together and have meals together. They would meet and do hobbies together. And he just wasn't invited because of course he wouldn't be interested in what the women were doing. Mm -hmm. Um, the women were all offered mentorships and placements from the, the pastors that they networked with, because that was an easy connection for them to make. No one thought to invite him into those relationships. Um, so I kind of just told it I guess I was trying to be winsome. (laughs) I told it like, just imagine the opposite experience and imagine what that might be like. Um, Mm. To be asked, being the only man in the room, he was asked to speak for all men. Well, how do I answer your question when not all men think the same way about anything? Um, So yeah, I I was trying to be winsome. And it was funny because still at the end, I had one gentleman come up to me and say, "So, so that was a good story. But did you really feel excluded? In what ways did you feel excluded during your time here? It like, it's just so hard. It's so hard to describe what it's like. It does feel like an impossible task, but I was in seminary. Someone gave me a poem that's called the invisible knapsack. I don't know if you've heard it. it and it's really written from the perspective of how how it feels to be a person of color. I'm a white woman, like that's not shocking information. This was 20 years ago. It was addressing white privilege effectively and what it is like uh, to be a, a person of color and the things that they cannot take for granted. And it was a list of like 20 things. It, it was quite a list. My first insight was how incredibly helpful it was as a tool to help me realize that I walk around every day with white privilege. So, so actually it's, a, it's an article called White Privilege, <clears throat> White Privilege Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack by Peggy McIntosh. So, uh, and she gives a list of items and, and, and this, is how, this is how they go. She says, uh, if I should need to move, I can be pretty sure of renting or purchasing housing in an area which I can afford and in which I want to live if I were a white person. Um, I can go shopping alone most of the time, pretty well assured that I will not be followed or harassed if I were a white person. Um, I can turn on the television or open the front page of the paper and see people of my race widely represented if I were a white person. And when I, when I read that, it was incredibly helpful uh, to help me understand the privileges that I carry, what I carry with me every day. 
when I go out into public. I have no fear or threat of being harassed or being suspect just because of my color. I also translated that into the, the men and women issue. It's a helpful tool, but I do wonder if we had tools like that. Um, because I, even as the question was asked at this event, I thought my first thought was, if I had three or four hours, maybe we could have that conversation. And then I also thought, you know what, even after three or four hours, I'm, I think the same question would be there. I don't see it. I, mm -hmm. I don't see how we're excluding people. I think a lot of this conversation is circular around the fact that women in leadership are not, are simply just not viewed as equal leaders. Like mm. we are risky and people are afraid of us or we're not seen as capable. And so I think a lot of it is um, like, what will it take to be seen as, as very valuable coworkers um, with good intentions? Because we also love Jesus and we love our churches and we love our ministry, like how much more do we need to prove that to people? Like we already um, have to step outside the bounds of, you know, getting a traditional job or, you know, yeah. doing the bivocational thing or like, what more do we need to prove that we're in it for the Lord? And we want to be good and cooperative and helpful. And maybe we would like opportunities to, to shine with the gifts that God gave us. I think that's kind of why it's a hard question because as much as these biases exist in the corporate world or the secular business world, wherever it is, somehow in the church, it is hard to disassociate all those feelings with this commentary on identity and worth that somehow we are yeah. not just not good leaders. We are just not good enough, period. Mm -hmm. Layered that with the, the challenges of the interpretation of some scriptures, yep, right? That's and true. so you have to get through that conversation before we can have this other conversation, whether it's interpersonal um, expectations and assumptions or, you know, structures that are in place sociologically that we just cannot break out of. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are layers to this that makes it a complicated path forward. And there's such a gravity toward young men with energy and calling and charisma. Very early on in my career, I was told there are extra challenges for you as a woman leading in the church. Yeah. So definitely go get your MDiv. That will make you more attractive to churches. They'll know you have training, et cetera, et cetera. And then wouldn't you know it, I run into men who some of them haven't even been to college and they're getting you know, opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, they're getting licensed and ordained and they haven't, you know, broken open a textbook since high school. Um, and that's super frustrating. <laughs> I find it super painful, to be honest. Yes. Yes. Very painful. To be overlooked because, um, you know what, there's a young, handsome guy, he wears a goatee and skinny jeans and totes around his iPhone or whatever. I mean, that was, that used to be my beef when I was younger and mm -hmm. I just can't compete with that. Yeah. I just can't. Even with a master's I, degree, even with a PhD. <laughs> no. I think that's the terrible part is like, I'm not looking to compete with anyone. I just want to do what the Lord called me to do. Like that's, that's kind of it. Yeah. But you can't even get on the field, let alone compete. You can't even sit on the bench. <sighs> right. You can't even be the water girl. I mean, you could be the water girl, but you're probably there for there's a reason you're there too. Yeah. 
Take notes for the meeting, please. <laughs> Send the follow-up emails so we all remember what we're supposed to do. And then when we forget to do it, please fill in the gaps. You know, my, my response to that is, you know what? You really don't want me taking notes. It, it never turns out good. <laughs> just, I'm, I'm a bad. Ugh. Jane's thoughts unfiltered. <laughs> oh, no, I say that out loud just in case someone wants to make sure that I'm the secretary. Mm, you don't. You're probably better <laughs> at that than me. <laughs> I'm outwardly diplomatic, but not inwardly. <laughs> I'm sure you're not. Well, one of the things I was thinking when when I was reading these articles was um, sometime a year or two ago, I can't remember when it was, but I was thinking about issues like this. And I, I posted on Facebook that dismantling the patriarchy mm. will require the assistance of the patriarchy, right? <laughs> um, and, and you could say the same thing, I'm sure. I'm sure that our, our Black brothers and sisters would say, I mean, like, I don't want to speak for them, obviously, but I mean, I, I think it's not a completely unfair comparison to say that it requires white people to help break down systemic racism, yeah. right? Um, we're part of the problem. We have more power. And so I think what's challenging in all of this is we can show up and do our best work. And like Kim, we can be like, I'm not here to dunk on anybody. Like, I just want to do my thing. Yeah. But until the people who hold the power either change the game or the, you know, the, the rules of engagement, or there's different things that are valued. There's really no incentive for the patriarchy to dismantle the patriarchy other than conviction by the Holy spirit, that it's the right thing to do because the, yeah. the church will mm -hmm. be better for it. And mm -hmm. I think that's, I don't want to jump to like solutions or what do we do or whatever, but I think, and I also think there's probably conversations that need to be had things that need to be written. You know, I'm not saying we just go in our prayer closets, but I do think that some of this is outside of our control. Yeah. We can't make anybody listen to yep. us or yep. respect us or hire us. Um, you know, what we can do is show up and keep showing up persistently with a smile and say what we need to say and do our best work. And, and I think constantly also examine our motives. It's very easy to get angry or cynical or bitter. And I yeah. think for yep. me, I do have to remind myself, I want, I want more equality and I want, um, I want this to change because as you said, Jane, it's painful and it's hurtful, but also it has to be about what's best for the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. And we're leaving people out. We're all weaker for the fact that we're leaving people out. Right. Yeah. And yeah. that needs to be part of the motivation as well. Mm -hmm. Very true. Yeah. You know what, Jen, as you were speaking, I had a change of heart because my question, when the person asked the question of, where are we leaving people out? Where are we excluding them? Excluding them? I don't see it. And again, my first thought was, give me three or four hours, and I may or may not be able to help you see this. This is my change of heart. I think just to, to be willing to ask that question, and even to say, you know what, I don't, I don't see it. I'm not quite sure what you're talking about. But there is there is a little opening there with that question. Maybe we could dialogue about this. Because what we are not doing in churches and denominations is even having the conversation about why when we structurally or doctrinally afford women to be ordained, 
-hmm. Are we not really seeing women step into leadership roles or taking a, a senior role in, in churches? We're going to ordain, ordain women, but we are not addressing mm -hmm. those hidden barriers and unpacking them. So I give props to that person uh, that he even asked that question and maybe maybe he had conversations with people about how we might be excluding people. And the fact that we can have this episode because he asked that question, which allows <laughs> us to, you know, wrestle through it as well. So a bit of a change of heart there. Maybe I should have given him more credit in that moment for even asking the question. Well, it's a great starting point. Yeah. I mean, I think that's fair. Also, the other side of it, let me show you a little bit of grace on that is it's an exhausting question to be asked it and is. you immediately yes. feel exhausted having to engage in yes. that dialogue. Yep which anytime there's groups that are marginalized or considered that they don't have as much to bring to the table, to put it on that group to make the case for why they should be at the table is exhausting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think we need to prepare ourselves that it's gonna potentially be third generation gender bias. And here's why I say that. Mm. Um, and this really kind of made me sad. There's this event called the Next Generation Preacher Search that's held in college students around the country you can prepare a short sermon and a video and you you oh. enter and there's finalists chosen it's meant to encourage young people who have the gift of preaching and yeah. give them more opportunities to learn the finalists or semi-finalists get to go to pepperdine in february and present their sermons to a group who gives them feedback so one of the young women here at the university where i work i've gotten to know her a little bit she was one of the semi-finalists and she got to go and she did a great job so I texted her when she came back and just said, I just want you to know how proud I am of you. And I hope I'm not making it weird because I don't know you that well, but I just want you to know, I see mm. that this is hard and I'm just so proud of you and I'm cheering for you, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And she wrote back and she said, she was grateful for the text. And she said, you're not, you're not making it weird. Thank you. And she said, it, it is challenging. You know, when you get up to preach and you hear people say, oh, I didn't realize they were letting girls do this. And she said, my friends and I just kept telling each other that we're doing this for our daughters. She's That's 20. Right. She's right. 20. Wow. Right. So on the one hand, I am so proud of her yeah. and her spirit. But at the same time, I'm like, she's 20 and she's having to think about how it's not going to happen for us. It's going to happen for our, our daughters. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. I'm, I'm saying the bias is deep. It is so deep. And that makes me so sad. Kim, you got something? No, I'm just sad now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we laugh and we chuckle and we, you know, complain, but there is a deep sadness mm -hmm. in these stories. Every time I hear them, oh, every 20-year-old girl that would love mm -hmm. to go to seminary and you hear these stories, you just want to reach out and hug them and then start throwing punches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Hey, friends, we'll pick up where we left off in the second part of this episode scheduled to drop next month. Thanks a bunch for being a part of our listening community. You can show us some love by hitting the subscribe button wherever you listen to our podcast. You can learn more about us at our website at girlstalkinchurch.com. And you can also engage the She Team and other listeners by joining our Shaklesiology podcast community Facebook page. See you there.